For the scripture reading this evening, we turn once again to the prophecy of Isaiah. We turn to Isaiah chapter 42, starting at verse 18, and read through verse 7 of Isaiah 43. Isaiah 42, beginning at verse 18. And just a, as a reminder, an introduction to the book of Isaiah, I could have said it this morning too, Isaiah is sometimes referred to as uh, a mini-Bible, because just as there are two parts to the Bible, an Old Testament and a New Testament, so there are also two parts to the book of Isaiah. And just as there are 39 books in the Old Testament, there are 39 chapters in the first part of Isaiah, and just as there are 27 books in the New Testament, there are 27 chapters in the second part of Isaiah. So that's why it's kind of it's sometimes referred to as a mini-Bible. Here in this section, we are in the second section of Isaiah. The first section speaks especially of judgment. And here in this section, God brings a word of comfort. Isaiah 42, starting at verse 18. Hear ye deaf, and look ye blind, that ye may see. God is bemoaning uh, the spiritual condition of his people. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but thou observest not. Opening the ears, but he heareth not. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. And that means he will magnify the word that he brings through his prophets, a word of judgment. He will magnify his law. But this is a people robbed and spoilt. They are all of them snared in holes, and they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivereth, for a spoil, and none saith, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil, and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore he hath poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it hath set him on fire round about, yet he knew not, and it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. But now, thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. 
Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even every one that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. The text is verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 43. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, even the little flame. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think it was very striking for all of us as elders when both Chloe and Chloe appeared before the consistory to make confession of faith, and they were each, this happened separately, they were each asked what their favorite Bible verse was, and without hesitation, they both mentioned this passage. And it's with that in mind that we look at this passage this evening. This is a favorite passage of many, it's a well-known passage And this is a good passage for us as a congregation to consider as well. Many of our young people are going back to college or have gone back to college or are going off to college for the first time. And they will experience many trials and hardships. And they need to be reminded of who is in control. They need to to be reminded of the Lord's unchanging covenant love towards them. And that's what this passage is about. Not only that, but many of our families are getting back into the school season. And with school, there's going to be many trials as well. Many blessings, to be sure, but also many trials. Maybe perhaps for our children, especially. And and we as our parents have to help them through it. And there are many trials for our families, for us as parents too. Not only that, but there are also many here this evening who have very burdensome trials that they are going through. Some of us are dying right now. Others of us are perplexed and anxious. Some have inward fears and doubts that suddenly fill the soul. In fact, I experienced it myself again this past week. You ever had that? Where you get that phone call and you hear what's on the other side of the phone And suddenly a wave of fear and anxiety takes hold of you. And you have to almost recollect yourself. You you have to remember to live by faith. You have to remember who's sitting on the throne. I had that again this past week. And it was in fact this passage, because I was thinking about it, it was this passage that God used to comfort me and give me confidence. And I trust that as we study this passage tonight, the Lord will cause us all to see the comfort and the confidence found in this passage. We take as our theme, passing through the waters and the fires. 
We look at three things. First, the fearful trials. Secondly, the comforting reassurances. And third, the appropriate response. Before we look at some of the specific language in the text, let's make sure we know the context, the setting in which God speaks these words. Here in Isaiah 42 and 43, Judah is in Babylonian captivity. The prophet Isaiah actually lived about 200 years before the Babylonian captivity. But God, in his great mercy towards his people, raises up this prophet beforehand to bring a word to God's people who are going to live 200 years in the future. That's really the broad context here. In chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah brings a word of judgment upon the people, and he tells them that they will go into captivity because of their many sins. And now starting in Isaiah 40, Isaiah brings a word of comfort to the people who are in that Babylonian captivity. Now as a nation, God's people are guilty of great sin. As a nation, collectively, the people had rejected the word of the Lord. They had turned to idols. They had indulged themselves in every kind of sin. We read that this morning in Isaiah 59. And you read that again here in Isaiah 42. The people are deaf and the people are blind. Hear ye deaf and look ye blind that ye may see. Who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger that I sent? They indulged in every kind of sin, drunkenness, oppression, adultery, you name it. They were carnally minded, and that's why God brought his people into captivity. God bemoans here how his own people, his servants, who were his witnesses and his messengers, have rebelled against him. And God sent forth his prophets to bring a word of warning against the people. He brought Jeremiah, he brought Isaiah, he brought Micah to warn the people, but they rejected that word. And so what does God say here in Isaiah 42, verse 21? He says, the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. God says, I will uphold the word that I bring through my prophets. I will bring you into captivity. I will bring destruction upon you. I will honor the word that was sent. And then in verse 22, God bemoans the sad state of his people and the grievous experiences that they went through. Many of you know the history. God raised up King Nebuchadnezzar and he sent Nebuchadnezzar to utterly destroy the city of Jerusalem. We read in scripture that Nebuchadnezzar slew all the young men with the sword in the temple, right in church. He slew all the young men with the sword. There was no compassion, we read, shown to anyone young man or maiden, old man or cripple, no compassion was shown to anyone. Three different times, Nebuchadnezzar brought his army against the city of Jerusalem, and each time he destroyed more of the nation. And in the third attack on the city, Nebuchadnezzar was so sick of this rebellious people that he destroyed everything. And that's where you have that great destruction, where the temple is toppled over and destroyed. The walls around Jerusalem are pushed over, the palaces of the king are burnt up and all the mansions of the wealthy in Jerusalem are plundered and destroyed. Everyone was slain and, and who wasn't slain with the sword was brought captive into Babylon. It was like a scorched earth policy. 
So that when Nebuchadnezzar was done with Judah, it looked as if the land had been utterly forsaken. Everything was a pile of ruins. So that we read in scripture that Judah was made a hissing. So that everyone who passed by was astonished and wagged their heads at just how great a destruction Jerusalem experienced. And what does God say in verse 24? Isaiah 42, verse 24. Who did this? Who gave Jacob for a spoil? It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. It was me. Therefore, he hath poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it hath set him on fire round about. Yet he knew not, and it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. That's the last part of Isaiah 42. And now here the people are in Babylonian captivity, a land of paganism, a land where the people are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. You walk in their midst and there's idolatry on every street corner. A land of gross wickedness and corruption and immorality. Oh yes, a land full of riches, to be sure. A land of earthly opportunity. But just for that reason, it was also a land that was a snare to many of God's covenant people. If you remember, things were, so, things were not so bad in Babylon for those who were carnally minded. The people became prosperous. In fact, they became so prosperous that after 70 years of captivity, when the Lord gave them an opportunity to return back to Judah, many of them didn't want to go. No, no. Many of the people weren't laying any of these things that God had done to heart. Already years earlier, they had chosen to eat the meat that was offered to the Babylonian idols. And many years earlier, they had chosen to bow down to that golden image of Nebuchadnezzar rather than be thrown in the fiery furnace. And many years earlier, they had been swallowed up by the sinful lifestyle of the ungodly around them. And yet, for God's people, for that remnant to whom God is now speaking at the beginning of chapter 43, for them, this was a time of great trial and great sorrow and affliction. These were, you could call them the elect colonel in the nation of Judah who had also been carried away to Babylon and they were having a hard go of it. Remember Daniel and his three friends who refused to eat the king's meat and were about to be put to death for it? Remember Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down to that golden image of Nebuchadnezzar and were thrown in the fiery furnace? This was a time of great trial. And God's people also saw what was happening in that foreign land. They saw the apostasy. They saw the church being swept away by the culture around them. They saw the church being destroyed as one covenant family after another covenant family began to forsake their spiritual inheritance in order to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And when the people of the Lord turned to the Lord in prayer, do you remember what they were turning to? Remember Daniel's habit of praying three times a day? And do you remember in which direction Daniel turned when he prayed? He turned to Jerusalem, to the temple. But what was there at the temple? But a rubble of stone. Can you imagine what God's people were going through in Babylon? Can you imagine what it felt like? 
the people must have felt in a very keen way as if God had simply vacated their lives, simply rose up and left the congregation, as if God's hand would no longer be stretched out for his people, as if God's promise of salvation would now be forgotten. Just look at the circumstances. They were completely powerless, impotent, in a foreign land with no earthly powers at all to deliver them. There's no earthly magistrate who's going to plead their cause. There's no man they can turn to who had the power to deliver them. And perhaps what especially made it all such a trial was the fact that the people knew that it was God who was doing this. Their own covenant God had done it. And what's more, they deserved it. They knew God had warned them. And God is righteous in all his dealings with them. And now you know what the trial was? I think the trial can be summed up in one word. It was a trial of fear. There was suddenly this surge of anxiety and fear that rose up in the hearts of God's people. There was this overwhelming temptation now to be consumed with worry. All is lost. Now is the end. All hope must be abandoned. Not only were they in a foreign land where they couldn't worship the Lord properly, but all human ways of reckoning told them that it's not possible that they could ever be delivered from this miserable condition. Oh yes, yes, they had God's promise that after 70 years God would bring them back. They had God's promises But right now, in the midst of the captivity, the fulfillment of that prophecy seemed like an illusion, like an impossible dream. By all earthly accounts, the enemy had triumphed, and God's people were going to be utterly destroyed for good. And the point is, from Isaiah's prophetic point of view, Judah, captive in Babylon, is passing through the waters. And Judah, in Babylon, is walking through the fire without any hope of deliverance as far as man is concerned. And there is fear. There is that fear of drowning. There is that fear of being burned alive. There is that fear of being overwhelmed with the floods so that you perish under the waters. And there is fear. Fear that grips the soul and squeezes the soul tight as if in a vice. And that's exactly what Satan wanted too, isn't it? To make God's people afraid. To make us afraid of Satan's power. To make us afraid that God will or has already forsaken us. To make us afraid that the promises of God are not true. And it's very scary when you're in that point. In the moment, that is terrifying. And I think we can understand, beloved, because we experience the same thing. Maybe not to the same degree or in precisely the same way. And we have to admit often our fears are so often inclined towards the earthy. But nevertheless, we experience these same things. How many of us haven't had those times when the Lord laid us down on the bed of affliction and our bodies are racked with pain so that sometimes we even despair of life itself. Lord, take me out of this misery. If this is the only way out that I die, take me out. 
There are some of us here for whom the ravages of disease are a very real thing. And they may be bearing their suffering silently, but it is real. And at those times, what sometimes happens is this. We begin to wonder, why? Why, O oh Lord? What is this serving? What purpose is this serving? Or we begin to ask, is the Lord still with me? Or has he vacated the room? And then all kinds of spiritual anxieties and fears begin to grip our souls. There are others in our midst who have suffered the loss of dear loved ones. And the trial of seeing them suffer was one thing. That was one thing. But now there's another trial of continuing on in life without the companionship of a loved one. And now all kinds of other fears grip our souls and we become anxious. I need help, Lord. I need help in the worst way. Maybe even with the recent controversy in our churches, we, we feel that sharp divide within families and it's painful. And then we stand back and we say, what's it for? What's it for? We love the church. We want God's church to prosper. We want our children to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. But it seems sometimes that the enemy has so much power and control and we become discouraged. And in one aspect of life or in another, we get that keen sense, again, that we are not in control. And what man is there that we can turn to for help? And our only help is in the Lord. He is the only one who can save us. And yet we also know at the same time that He is the Lord in sovereign control of the situation, bringing these circumstances into our lives. And that is perplexing. And maybe at those precise moments, our sins rise up against us. Our old man of sin starts accusing us. And Satan comes along. And now there is this double fear that maybe all these things are happening because God hates me. Because God is against me. Because these sins are so bad, God can't blot those sins out. And we're done for. There's no hope. That's what Judah was experiencing. That's the context of the passage before us. It's quite something. And to further expand on what these trials were, let's look now at the text and some of the language that the text uses. Let's look more closely at verse 2. When thou passest through the waters and through the rivers, when thou walkest through the fire. Notice a few things. First, notice that first word, when. These trials are to be expected. It doesn't say if you pass through the fire. God doesn't say this is something you'll want to avoid. Avoid the water, avoid the fire. And you're a fool if, if you can't avoid it. That's not what God says. God says when it happens. It is inevitable. I lead you in this way. You can expect it. Second, notice that God says that there will be all kinds of trials. Not just passing through the waters, but there will also be the fires. Think of the imagery. You won't just have to walk through roaring rivers, flash floods that threaten to overtake you. But it's like as soon as you get through those flash floods, there you are standing in front of a forest fire. You go through one trial, and then you go through another trial, and those two trials are of a completely different sort. 
One moment you're freezing cold in the water, the next morning you're burning up in the heat of the fire. You think you have one trial figured out. Okay, I've gone through this trial. I know this trial. I know how to walk through this. And, and up ahead there's a new, different trial altogether. All kinds of trials. Third, notice that these will be terrible trials. Let me ask you, is there anything more terrifying than the thought of drowning? Isn't that a fear? You're, you're maybe trapped in the bottom of a large vessel and the water keeps rising higher and higher and you can't get out. Or you're trying to cross a river and suddenly you're swept away with the current and you're not in control at all. Is there anything more scary than that? Except for perhaps maybe being burned alive through the fire, being burned at the stake. These are terrible trials the passage is talking about. What's even striking is that in the Bible, water and fire are pictures of judgment. Think of Noah and Noah's flood when all human flesh except for eight souls were drowned in the water of God's judgment. Or think of Egypt and Pharaoh's army being drowned in the Red Sea. Think of fire. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah and the hailstone and the fire that rained down from heaven. That's God's judgment. Or think of the final day of judgment when the world will be judged with fire. These are terrible trials of the worst kind. That's the imagery here. The people of God knew what the prophet was saying. And fourth, notice that these trials will be often repeated. I take that from the Hebrew parallelism here. That repetition, when thou passest through the waters, and when thou, go, thou dost go through the rivers, and through the fire and the flame, the trials are often repeated. Now, maybe that's just the Hebrew parallelism, but I think the Hebrew poetry here uh, accurately reflects how trials happen. We experience the trial again and again and again. And sometimes the hardest thing about the trial is that I have to go through the trial again and again. And I'm weary of it. And now here it comes again. Hasn't it been enough? This is what we can expect. I can say to Chloe and to Chloe and to others, expect it. It's inevitable. In this world, particularly as a disciple of Jesus Christ, as God's elect child, having that spiritual life where you are concerned about the honor of God and the cause of truth and the church, you will have trials. Trials at college. Trials of faith. Satan wants to plant those doubts in your heart. Fearful trials. But you know what also stands out in this passage? The fact that God understands. God understands the trials. That's why he gives us this passage. He knows these trials are hard. He knows the experiences we have. He knows we will fear and we will be tempted to fear. And that's also why he, in the midst of these trials, gives us comforting reassurances. And what is the comforting reassurance? Well, the central assurance is this. God says, I will be with you. When thou passest through the waters, 
I will be with you. And the point is, you won't be destroyed. That's the fear, isn't it? That was the fear of God's people in Babylon, that they would be destroyed, that spiritually they would fall away, be forsaken, and left ashamed of their hope. That they would drown. That they would be consumed by the fire. And God says, no, no, no. It won't happen. You will be preserved. You will be sustained. Because God does not forsake the work of his hands. I am your friend. Didn't we hear that this morning? I am your friend. A faithful friend. And notice the language. When thou passest through the waters and when thou walkest through the fire. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had to pass through fire, I would try to run through the fire as fast as I could. But the passage speaks here of walking through the fire. It makes me think of Daniel's three friends who were thrown in that fiery furnace. Remember the the guards who had to stoke the fire? They were slain by the fire. Those who had to throw these men in the furnace, they were slain by the fire. But what happened to those three friends? Your children remember? In Daniel 3 verse 25, King Nebuchadnezzar says, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. They had been thrown in, bound up, and now they are walking in the fire and they have no hurt. What were the men doing in the fire? Were they running? Were they hopping around trying to avoid the flames? No, we read they were walking. They were at a slow, controlled pace. And why were they walking in the midst of the fire? Because God was with them. Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the the, the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. God, Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, was with them. And that's the same thing in the text. The fire is hot, but God's people don't have to run through the fire. They can walk through the fire. And when it comes to the waters, they pass through the waters, almost like they are walking on dry ground. Makes you think of the Red Sea. The water does not impede their movement. They walk through the water because the reality is nothing shall stop the onward march of the soul predestined to eternal joy. They continue walking on. They continue passing through. They are not overtaken by the water, but they pass right through. Even when it came to Daniel's three friends, I understand that that was a very powerful, miraculous event, but it's a picture for us. And this passage is talking about that. When you pass through the fire, you can even imagine Daniel's three friends remembering this verse in the captivity. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Isaiah 43, verses 2 and 3. Let's test the word of God here. But you remember how it was when they came out of the fire? We read that not a hair of their head was singed, Neither was their coat changed, and there wasn't even the smell of fire on them. That's how it is. In the end, beloved, that's how it is. That's how it will be for you. In the end, you will come forth, and there won't even be the smell of trial and sorrow on you. All your tears will be wiped away. Why is that true? 
because God is with you. That's how it is in the text. That's how it was with Daniel's friends. And that's how it is with us today, beloved. God is with us. God is with you. Individually, as families, as a congregation, don't doubt that. Because that's where the fear comes in. And who is this God? Look at the text, verse 3. For I am the Lord thy God. He is the Lord Jehovah. It's in capital letters. The eternally unchanging God of his covenant. Who remembers that relationship of friendship that he has established with his people. Yes, his people often forget that friendship they have with God. They even go so far as to turn away from God and serve idols. And they trust in the arm of flesh. And over and over again, God shows them that all these things, their idols and the arm of flesh, is useless in the hour of trial. But God says, though you forget me, I do not forget you. You are my friend. You are my people. And I am your God. I am your father. I am your friend. I am your all in all. I am your God. Meaning also this, I am the one in control. And I am ruling all things for you. The waters under my power. The fire in my control. The phone call you receive and the news that you hear on the other line, on the other end. Every word you hear is under my control. What's going on there on that other end is in my control. Not one hair of yours can be singed and not one drop of water can touch you apart from it being according to my fatherly will. I am the Lord thy God. And then he says, the Holy One of Israel. And what that means, it reminds the people that he has set Israel apart to be his peculiar people. You, wonder of wonders, you, child of God, are the peculiar child of God. He is the God of Israel. That's part of his identity. He can't forget his people in Babylonian captivity because his very name is Holy One of Israel. And he is the Holy One of Israel. He is devoted. He is not only perfect and separate from sin, but he is devoted to his people Israel. He will not abandon them nor forsake them. He is devoted, dedicated to them. And as the holy God of Israel, he will also go to work sanctifying his people, making them holy as he is holy. He doesn't forsake the work of his hands, but he perfects the work of his hands. That his people might be his people indeed. And that's exactly what God is doing in the Babylonian captivity. Really, we need to look at it this way. Babylon was necessary to preserve the church. There was judgment. There was judgment. There was chastening as well. But God used it to preserve that remnant, lest they be swallowed up in the midst of the wickedness that had so covered the land of Canaan. Then continuing in verse 3, I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior, thy Deliverer. And again, this is God's name. And if he's going to be true to his name, he must save his people. And then he says, I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. And what that simply emphasizes is this. God will not spare any expense. 
for the salvation of his people. Instead of Israel being destroyed, Egypt was destroyed. Remember that? Israel was groaning under the tyranny of Pharaoh. And instead of Israel, that weak, pathetic people being destroyed, God destroyed the great, powerful, glorious nation of Egypt for Israel's sake. That's what he did. Instead of Israel being destroyed, God destroyed Ethiopia and Seba. And the best reference for that is when that happened during the days of King Hezekiah. When King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came against Jerusalem. Remember, he was about to destroy Jerusalem, and then the angel slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. But King Sennacherib also himself was distracted by what was going on in Ethiopia and Seba. God says, I, I gave these other nations to preserve my church. The point is, Israel stands in a completely unique relationship with God compared to every other nation. She is his chosen people. God is willing to give up the whole world, all the nations of the earth, for his people Israel. That's what Israel needs to remember in her Babylonian captivity. And that's what we need to remember too. And this is where we need to remember the cross, beloved. In the midst of all our fears and all our anxieties and sorrows, when you are shaken, sit down and remember what God was willing to do for you and what he did do for you in the cross of Jesus Christ. In the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that God was not willing to spare any expense for the salvation of his people. But in fact, God himself came in our flesh. He became our substitute. And he endured the horrors and sorrows of hell in our stead. Instead of us enduring the waters of God's wrath, which would have swallowed us up alive... Instead of us enduring the fires of God's wrath, which would have engulfed our hearts in an eternal flame of fire, God himself passed through it. And when the text says, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, then we also need to remember that name, Emmanuel. You children know what that name is, right? Emmanuel, God with us. God with us to such a degree that he came in our flesh as our representative and he takes our spot in the waters and fires of hell. God himself passed through the waters. God himself walked through the fires. God didn't just give up the world for us. He gave up his only begotten son. And sometimes we're so used to hearing about it that the wonder of it all is forgotten. Meditate on that. When you are in the trial, when you are experiencing that excruciating pain, remember Jesus Christ and remember that what he bore was the wrath of God that you might be spared. And there is no more punitive wrath of God for you. All these sorrows, all these trials, it's not God's punishment of you. All reason for punishing you was taken away at the cross. What God brings upon you now is, is a trial sent in his own infinite wisdom to lead you on to glory, to further sanctify you, to preserve you, in fact, just as he preserved Israel in Babylon. They didn't understand it. 
But after 70 years, God did perform that wonder, didn't he? Raising up Cyrus, king of Persia, to issue the decree. And you might say, how is this possible? But God did it because he's true to his word. And then even with every trial, this remains the case. God is with us. When you pass through those trials, those sorrows, those hardships, God is with you. He's not only the one in control of everything, but in his sending love towards you, he comes to you. He's controlling it all from his throne in heaven, and then he also comes down, he comes alongside you, and he walks with you through those waters and through those fires. And he carries you, in fact. And the point is, if God so loves his church, that he gave himself for it, if the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep, shall he, who has already done such great things, let his people fall away? Let his people fail to come into the possession of what he purchased for them with his shed blood? Shall he forsake them now after already doing everything for them? Having redeemed us through the blood of Christ, is it now, we could say, not a small thing for God to work everything else for our good? Passing through the waters, that we might, passing through the waters of death itself, that becomes an instrument in God's hand to, to lead us across the Jordan River, through the waters of the Jordan, that we might enter into that promised rest. These are the comforting reassurances God gives his people in the text. And again, was not God true to his word? Did God not work all things together for the good of his people? Leading all things in such a miraculous way that they did return to Judah after 70 years. And, and there were trials there too. It's not like the trials stopped, but there were trials there too. But then even after that, 400 years later, he brings everything so that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He's the king in Jerusalem. He's, he's fulfilling perfectly all the promises God spoke earlier in the scriptures. Our God is an awesome God. There's no other way about it. His word is true. So what's the appropriate response? Not just for Judah, but for us who hear this word in 2022. What's the appropriate response for Chloe and for Chloe? Or for others, for, for young people in their challenges and trials? as they go off to college and as they come across professors and studies that are going to test them? What's the appropriate response for you in the trials that lie before you in this week? And you maybe experience the temptation to fear and to despair. The appropriate response is this. Believe. Believe the word of your friend, Sovereign. Receive this word of God. As you receive the whole scriptures as the word of God, receive this scripture also. Embrace it. Stand on it. Etch it into your heart. Because this is the word of God to you, O believer. 
Don't go by the physical appearances. Go by the authority of God's word. When you're at college, always go by the authority of God's word. Depend on this word. You will pass through the waters. You will experience trials you never knew existed. But the waters will not drown you. The fires will not burn you. Stand on the solid rock of God's word. And you will find that the trials, the waters, and the fires are serving you. You commit yourself to the Lord. You continue to stand on the solid rock. Nothing's changed as far as that goes. As you move forward, he will show you that his word is a solid rock indeed. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. I gave Jesus Christ for you. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, the comforts of thy word delight our soul. Oh, strengthen our faith that we might embrace and we might enjoy the beauties of thy promises. And we pray for these young ladies, that thou mayest encourage them and strengthen them in their faith too. And that as a congregation, we might be strong in the Lord. And we might bring this word to each other too. And that in all things, our eyes might be fixed on thy son, Jesus Christ. And we might know that he's the one who's sitting on the throne. In his name we pray. Amen.